Genesis 49. Um, as, as Chris said, it's been a while. And those of you that come on Wednesday nights at, or Tuesday nights at the time, uh, it has been a while for me to be up here. Um, and uh, this chapter is really interesting as I was preparing for it. Uh, it's really Jacob prophesying over his 12 sons. And uh, I was reminded as I was preparing for this about the importance of speaking prophetically into people's lives. Um, I've been struggling for a while with uh, depression and stuff with my job and all that stuff, as you guys may have known, and maybe I'm too candid sometimes <laughs> about my uh, struggles, but uh, just really unsure of what I was supposed to be doing in life. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I, why I decided I needed to kind of step out and just figure out what I'm going to be doing as a uh, vocation, uh, aside from being here and, and serving. Uh, so those of you who know me very closely know what, what that, all the events that transpired leading up to that. But um, I'm excited because I feel like God uh, allowed many people uh, from this congregation, my, uh, my wife, my family, to speak into my life truth and, and, and speak about Christ in me and reminding me and stirring me up to realize that God has an individual calling on my life specifically, not just the church having a, a, a plan, you know, God having a plan for the ages of, of how the church is going to function, but for each individual member of the church, he has a specific plan. So um, it was because of that that I was able to kind of take the blinders off that, that I had allowed the enemy to kind of make it like, this is all you're ever going to experience. Your life is going to be miserable. This job is terrible. And that's just how you're going to have to live for the rest of your life. So get used to it. You know, we get into those pity parties and things like that. And as we look at these, these patriarchs of the faith in Genesis, they've went through some stuff. <laughs> you know, they didn't just uh, skate on a skateboard through life and go woohoo and, and do little roly toly tumblies through meadows of, of wheat. And, you know, I know I'm losing my mind as I'm talking, but you know what I'm talking about. You can picture the image of people, you know, prancing through a field and life being excellent. Uh, but as we've seen in the book of Genesis, it's not excellent all the time. And um, what I like about this chapter is it kind of recaps everything we've covered. So if you're just here for the first time, you're going to get a a really quick panoramic view of what we've studied, at least through from Jacob onward, uh, chapter 29 of Genesis onward. Uh, but really quickly, I'd just like to put this verse up, Proverbs 29, 18. And I put the King James Version up uh, on the screen, but I'm going to read the ESV, which is what I read from uh, currently. I change from time to time. Um, but uh, this verse just really stands out to me because I had felt rudderless in life, and obviously, I knew that God was was leading me here in this church. But just with the other, you know, f- fifty hours a week that I spend awake, or you know, probably a lot more than that. I'm not good at math, but um, I didn't know what my direction was in life, and and uh, I had no vision. So uh, I felt like this verse was appropriate. It said, "Where there's no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he." That's the King James. Uh, the ESV, but I like that it says the people perish because I felt like the spirit inside of me was kind of dwindling and, and flickering. Uh, and I needed people to remind me of who I was and what God had called me to do, which is what a lot of you did. You spoke truth and you spoke prophecy into my life. And uh, hopefully I get the chance to, to do that to you, uh, for you tonight. Um, but 
I felt like God awakened a vision in my heart. And because of that, it sparked life in me again. And uh, what I, I kind of, we sent out in the email today was a reminder that when we speak prophetically into the lives of the people around us, we are revealing Christ to them, but also in them. We're awakening the Christ in them. You know, and uh, that's kind of what I feel like God has done over the last few months. And uh, it was kind of totally coincidental and by accident that I got this chapter to teach tonight, just by luck of the draw. Um, I wasn't going to start teaching until March, but uh, Chris said, why don't you do this week? And it just so happened to be this chapter. So anyway, that's my big uh, summary there. But let's dive in. If you don't mind, I would like to read through the entire chapter and then go back and hit on the points, because I just want to read it in context completely, and I'm all about context. So bear with me as I read. I'll try to do my best speaking voice to uh, keep your attention. But um, Chapter 49, verse 1 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. But to the bounties of the everlasting hills may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each 
with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to him, said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and preached his last and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Thank you for your patience. Um, as you read through those, it doesn't sound like very encouraging words from a father to, to 12 sons. Um, Pat asked me before we started, which one would you like to be of the, the tribes? It was a really hard question. I couldn't answer it right away uh, because you don't know when you're reading it, which is, a good, which, is, which is a blessing here because sometimes he's talking and he's saying stuff like, you're a serpent. And you're like, whoa, okay. Last words from a father, you know. I'm sure they all, dad's dying. We got to get over to see him so we can say the very, you know, the things that you don't want to leave unsaid. And they got there and they were probably like, I probably could have just, phoned it in <laughs> you know like some of these uh when you see them at for, at face value you're like these don't seem like blessings why does the header say jacob blesses his sons or the blessings of jacob to his sons whatever your bible says so what we're going to do is we're going to go through each person and uh for time's sake obviously thankfully some of the people it's like two words about them and then we move on so uh, you know i did my best to kind of figure out what to do with them but there's not really that much information in the Bible for some of the tribes. We don't know much about Naphtali or Zebulon or Issachar. They're not the ones you think of when you say, name the 12 tribes of Judah or of Israel. You're like Judah, Simeon, Levi, Joseph, and then blank. <laughs> you know, like we, we forget. So uh, thankfully, uh, it's not uh, all our fault because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about some of the tribes. So we'll focus uh, more so on Judah than anything else tonight. Um, just because that's the line of the Messiah, as we'll see. But uh, if you look at Reuben, beginning in verse 3, it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So he's starting off on a roll here, and Reuben's probably feeling really good. The firstborn, uh, he's saying, you're preeminent, you're my strength, you are the, the fruit of my loins, the very first child to come into the earth. And Reuben actually means, behold, a son. Look, God has given me a son. And it says, so Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. The affliction she's talking about is the fact that Jacob actually loved Rachel more than her. Uh, And she said, now, therefore, my husband will love me because I gave him a son. I was the first in line to produce an offspring for him. So the name Reuben means see his son. So why does he transition in verse 4 to say you're unstable as water, you shall not have the preeminence, even though it was entitled to him as the firstborn son? Well, in, if you recall in Genesis 35, when Rachel passed away on the road giving birth to Benjamin, it's really interesting. This isn't even an entire verse in the Bible. It says, And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it, period. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. So... It doesn't even take up the entire verse. The Bible just kind of mentions it in passing and then goes on. And you're like, wait, what? Bilhah is actually, I forget, uh, she's the mother of Zebulun, I believe, and Issachar. I'm sorry, Dan and Naphtali. So 
his half-brothers, essentially, he goes and when, when Jacob is mourning for Rachel, he's, you know, I don't know if she, maybe they just couldn't resist each other or what. I don't know what's going on here. But beyond just it being a, a sinful act because it's immoral, it was also a claim or a grasping at Jacob's position as the head of the household to, to lay with a wife or, you know, to lay with the father's wife in that way was to basically say, I am going to take for myself, I'm not going to wait for, for the inheritance, I'm going to usurp the authority of my father, uh, which we see Absalom do that. If you're familiar with the story, when Absalom re- rebels against David, his father, David's fleeing and Absalom openly takes all of uh, David's uh, concubines and sleeps with them publicly to basically say, this is what I think of my father. I am the king now, and everything that was the king's is now mine. So because of Reuben doing this, he has essentially forfeited what he was trying to claim. He was trying to get something for himself that was not to be his, and he forfeited it. Um, And what, what else we learn about Reuben is, he tries to make up for that action. Even though it's such a brief mention, we don't really talk about it that much, Reuben spends a lot of effort and energy trying to make up uh, what he had done to his father. If you look in Genesis 37, if you guys recall, Reuben was the one who stood up against the brothers to say, don't kill Joseph. Because when their dreamer was coming, as they called him, they're like, let's kill this guy. I'm so sick of him. And Reuben said, it said, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into the pit, which is in the wilderness. I guess it was like six of one, half dozen of the other to Joseph. It was either be left in a pit to die or be killed physically. But Reuben thought he was doing him a favor at least, uh, which is in the wilderness and do not lay a hand on him. That he, but it, then the editorial note is that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So we see a little bit of Reuben's motive here. He wants to earn favor with Jacob again after having done something wrong. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't really work out for him because they, we know the story and we went through it. Joseph goes off and gets sold while Reuben's away. Reuben comes back and says, what have you done? I'm supposed to give him back to dad and now he's not here. He's gone forever. Woe is me. Basically, it's all about him. Uh, but what's also interesting is when, when they say they need to bring Benjamin back, if you guys remember, Reuben steps up and says, because they left Simeon there in prison while Joseph is you know, waiting for them to bring Benjamin. So he's like, they keep Simeon as collateral. Then they go back and say, we need to bring Benjamin. And Jacob says, wait, you, you cost me Joseph. You cost me Simeon. Now you want to take Benjamin? No way. And Reuben, he, you know, he kind of Again, he, he tries to help, but makes things a little bit worse. I think it's funny. He says uh, in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 42, verse 37, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Why doesn't he say, kill me, if you don't come back? Kill my two sons. They're rabble rousers. You know, it's just, he kind of doesn't get it. You know, he's, he's very close to making amends, but he falls short again, uh, we know the story, we went through it, that Benjamin goes and Joseph is revealed and all is well. But we see this character flaw in Reuben that he gets close, but he falls short. And I think that's an encouragement to us because it says to me that when we try to earn our favor with our father, we're always going to come up short. Um, you know, We all make our mistakes and we all sin, maybe not the way Reuben sinned, but... Uh, 
we then try to make up for any sin debt that we've racked up and we fall short. What's interesting about the tribe of Reuben is when they're going into the promised land, the land that God had promised through Abraham, which was Reuben's great-grandfather, you know who decided, I like it here on the other side. I don't want to enter into the promised land. I just want to be right on the border. It was Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in uh, Numbers, I believe. Uh, we see that they, they basically say, we don't want to go in and do the work to get into the promised land. We don't want to go and accept and take hold of God's promise. We're comfortable here because everything looks really good. The land's nice. We have lots of cattle. The cattle seem to like it. It's not our fault that the cattle decided to stop here and eat the grass. We're just going to stay put. You know, we, we settle sometimes for second best when God has promised us even greater things. And Reuben is a type of that, obviously. What's also interesting is that Reuben's descendants are Dathan and Abiram, which were the ones who joined Korah in the rebellion against Moses, if you recall that story. And what ended up happening there? The ground opened up and swallowed them. So uh, Reuben, we're not surprised that Jacob calls him out in this way. And what's interesting is that if you read it, at least in my translation, it says, you defiled it, speaking of his father's bed, he went up to my couch. Is this the first time that the brothers are hearing about this event? Because as you saw in the scriptures, it kind of glossed over it very quickly. We don't know if that was a, you know, something that was revealed to Moses when he's, you know, putting together the first five books of the Bible. Did the children know? Did the other children of Jacob know that Reuben had done this? Did Naphtali and Dan, whose mother this was, know? But it's interesting that he changes the, uh, the pronoun there. He says, you defiled it. He went up to my couch. It's almost like he's like looking around and saying, yeah, this guy right here. Can you believe that? So it's, I just find that interesting about Reuben. And unfortunately, I think we can, we can all take a little bit of Reuben in us, or we, we have seen that played out in our own life. And with Moses, he says, why would you do this? This is after they spied out the land and the 10 outweighed Joshua and Caleb's message saying the land is good. They're like, no, no, giants, blah, blah, blah. And then it discouraged the hearts of the people and they ended up having to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. This is when they're about to enter in finally after all that. And they say, we're content here. And Moses says, you're going to discourage the heart of the people again so that we're going to have to wander forever. Why should you sit here? It actually says this. Moses says, why should you get to sit here while they go in and take the land, while they go in and fight the battles? And for me, that's a challenge to say, is there anything that I'm comfortable with? And I I see the other saints taking hold and taking victory and fighting against the spiritual forces out there that are hindering other Christians from entering into everything that God has for them. Am I sitting idly by? Or am I on the offense? Am I attacking those spiritual things that are blockading victory, blockading you know, the kingdom of God from spreading either in my family or in my community? Um, so that's a challenge. And I, I hopefully um, we don't fall into the same traps as Reuben. And I know that we, we have the power in Christ to overcome those things. So as we move on to Simeon and Levi, Simeon and Levi are brothers Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. And then he describes what they did. They killed men. What are we talking about here? If you recall, it wasn't that long ago, we learned about the one daughter that Jacob had, Dinah, or at least the one daughter that we see in Scripture. Um, 
Shechem saw her in the field, thought she was beautiful, decided he had to have it. He didn't put a ring on it, even though he liked it. Um, so he, sorry, I had to get your attention somehow. Um, so he took what was not his and raped uh, Dinah, even though in his twisted mind he was showing endearment to her or whatever, you know, it's still rape. Uh, but they, the brothers find out and they are enraged, Simeon and Levi specifically. They're the ones who are called out by name in the story. And they say, what? You al-? And Jacob doesn't really do anything. He just kind of is like, oh man, that, that's too bad. We, he's silent on the issue. Um, but what ends up happening is they say, and you guys remember this, okay, if you want to marry into our family, you want our daughters to marry your sons and vice versa, you need to be circumcised. That's what we'll do. We'll just make you into God's chosen people by forcing circumcision on you. And for some reason, all these grown men said, that sounds awesome. And they were, I guess these the girls that were with Jacob's clan must have been really attractive and stuff that they were so desperate to marry them that they'd be willing to change their entire anatomy. Uh, it was just strange to me. I don't understand the story. But so what ends up happening is they, they go for it and they, they get circumcised. And it says on the third day when they were all very sore, uh, Simeon and Levi and a bunch of men just go in and slaughter all the men. And they take the women and children as slaves and they hamstring the oxen and stuff. They just, they destroy everything. Like, why? <laughs> what is that? That's horrible. And Jacob, and, and uh, we talked about how Jacob had a me complex or an eye com- a problem with his eye. You know, everything was, you made me a stench to the people. Why did you do this to me? Not thinking about Dinah, his innocent daughter that was victim in this whole scenario. So when I look at Simeon and Levi, he says, I will divide your your portion, essentially, in Jacob and scatter you throughout Israel. And those things are actually true. We see that come to fruition in their life. So when we look at them, what I find interesting is that they use something that God had given them as a sign of their covenant love relationship with him to do what? To exercise vengeance and cruelty on the people, the nations that God had called them to be a light to. And when I think about that, I think of myself sometimes, how I can use the things that God has called me to do. You know, if I specifically decide not to do something because I feel like God's saying not to do that, I then make that the standard for everybody else. And I, instead of my good works pointing, you know, the good work of circumcision in this case, you know, for them, my good works, it says they're supposed to, the, the Gentiles, the nations, the unbelievers are supposed to see my good works and glorify my Father in heaven. What I do sometimes is I take my good works and say, you need to do my good works in order for God to get glory. Instead of good works being an arrow to God, we make it a ladder to God, in a sense. That's our way to get to God. And that's, that's the message sometimes that we bring to the world. Simeon and Levi saying, and I know this is a stretch, but yeah, you need to be circumcised and then all is well. no. They were idolatrous. They thought it was fine to rape a girl. There was a lot of other issues here. But they took that, you know, they, they blanket, blanketed this issue and made it a God issue when really their heart was just as wicked as the people they were supposed to be a light to. And I just, I look at the church at large and sometimes I, I am challenged by the Holy Spirit to say, am I showing people what God thinks about sin 
in a way that would make them actually want to turn from it? Or am I showing them that God hates them and that God wants to destroy them? And Simeon and Levi are kind of a type in that way. I think that they, they abuse this restriction that God had put on them and try to force it onto people that God never said they needed to do that. You understand? I, know if, I don't know if that's a stretch or if you guys are tracking with me, but that's kind of what I took from that. Um, and what's interesting is, even though this is a prophecy, what we do with it, or what Simeon and Levi decided to do with these words from Jacob, actually changes the outcome of both tribes. Um, for Simeon, what ends up happening to them is they just continue down this negative track. And uh, if, we, if you look at the number of Simeon, in the beginning of Numbers, there actually is a point to all those numbers, by the way. Uh, they started out being the third largest tribe. And 35 years later, in the wilderness, they had lost 63% of themselves. And their inheritance ended up just being scattered about within Judah's inheritance. They didn't get their own allotment. Whereas Levi, if you guys, you guys are familiar with the golden calf story, they... Um, you know, Moses is getting the law and they build the golden calf. And then Moses comes down and is angry because they're worshiping and there's having orgies and all this stuff. And he says, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And in Exodus 32, verse 26, uh, if that verse is up there, it says, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And then verse 28. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. That's a sad time. That's not cool what happened and the result and the, the consequence of the action. That's more of the emphasis there. The consequences of the action, not the people carrying out the consequence. Because God did not want these people tainting what he was establishing. He was putting the law in place, but God always redeems, always restores. And when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. So we see that those numbers really do weigh itself out. But this is really interesting. It says, Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. So Moses is saying to the tribe of Levi, essentially, this is a second chance for them. After they did what the harm that they had done to Shechem and that whole area, Levi steps up and says, I'm going to make amends, not in a works-based thing, you know. But they said, I'm on God's side here. They stood up in the face of harlotry and all these things that were happening, idolatry, and they said, no, I'm on the side of the Lord. And Moses said, consecrate yourselves that the Lord will bless you. So what ends up happening, you guys are familiar way more with the tribe of Levi, I'm sure. They were the priesthood. You know, They didn't receive land in the sense that all the other tribes did, but because the Lord God was their inheritance. That's what the scripture says. They inherited God. That was their inheritance. And they, they received cities throughout the entire uh, land, and they were the cities of refuge. All of the Levite towns were the cities of refuge, where people who had murdered or accidentally killed, not murdered, I guess, but people who had manslaughter uh, on their track record, they could flee to the cities of refuge so that the person who was going to come and avenge 
couldn't touch them. So there's just a lot of pictures there that I think is really interesting. That God gives a second chance to those to set up a place for them to flee to, to become a refuge. And it's the priesthood. And we know who our high priest is, is Jesus Christ. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how he is our refuge. We run to him. And he's the God of second chances as well. Uh, So if you move on into verse 8, this is where we're going to spend most of our time over the next couple minutes here before we close. Judah, and this is the one that we're familiar with the most because we know that Jesus Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Essentially, you know, they're going to have a, a stranglehold on their enemies. They're going to be, their enemies are going to be rendered powerless because of Judah's might and strength. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. So Judah means to praise or praised, uh, and we're familiar with Judah. But he doesn't have a clean track record either. If, you, if you're familiar, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, first of all, we see that Judah, um, he's the one who decided, let's, let's sell Joseph. Let's make money off of this guy. He also uh, had children and... Tamar was his daughter-in-law, and as his sons would die, he was supposed to give the next son in line to bear an offspring for the firstborn. And he did it three times and then decided, yeah, I'm not going to keep giving sons to you because they keep dying under mysterious circumstances. (laughs) Uh, So what ends up happening is Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah's walking down. Oh, cool, prostitute. Uh, Here's my signet ring and my staff and all this stuff. And they consummate their relationship. And then they find out that Tamar's pregnant and he's going to kill her because she played the harlot. And it turns out that he's the father. So Judah, again, we see this not-so-shining resume here. But then we also see the opportunity that Judah had to redeem himself. Whereas Reuben said, you can kill my two kids so that I'll protect Benjamin for you. Judah was the one who said, take me instead of Benjamin. Because our father is going to die if Benjamin doesn't return. He's the one who offered himself, and he's a type of Christ in that regard, offering himself to set the others free. Uh, And what I find really cool is these verses here in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, my translation says, until tribute comes to him. I don't think that's an accurate translation. Um, your Bible may say something like, to him who it belongs, or to him whose right it is, or the more common uh, for the NASB, the King James, and the New King James, it's till Shiloh comes, and Shiloh has a capital S. Um, this is one of the most debated verses in the Bible of what, what is Shiloh, who is Shiloh, is it a place, is the translation supposed to be more about uh, whose right it is, you know, because uh, the idea of Shiloh has to do with having authority and and being at peace because you are sovereign over uh, an area. Um, But what's really interesting is the the common interpretation of Shiloh is that it's a reference to the Messiah. And uh, it's proven out as you look, even, you know, a lot of critics, I would say, tend to say, well, no, that's, that's like the later Christian interpretation because they wanted to, they try to put Jesus into everything, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, 
liberal scholars who decide to basically backtrack everything in the Old Testament that has a hint of prophecy in it and say, well, that was added later because there's no way they could foretell the future. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad that that's their thinking on that. We know another story. We know that God knows the end and the beginning. They're all the same to him. So I have no problem believing that God could put something in his word that happened thousands of years before it would take place, one year, a day before, a minute before. Um, so just really interesting here, as we look at this, Judah, it says, <clears throat> the scepter shall not depart. And the idea of the, sh- the scepter is the right to rule, the authority to execute the law like a king would. He has the scepter, he makes the rules, right? And he can mete out judgment according to whether the laws are followed or not. Um, and it says it will not depart until, so there's a time when it's going to depart because there's a, an expiration date, as it were, until Shiloh comes. So who is this Shiloh? And we already talked about it. Uh, the common understanding among even rabbis before Christ was that Shiloh was a reference to the coming Messiah that they themselves were looking for. Granted, they missed him, uh, unfortunately, but the, the idea that this is something that is put in later is just doesn't hold up when you actually look at it. And I have all this information here if you want to take a look at it. I'm not going to go through it all because you guys would fall asleep, but I get really excited reading it. It's so excellent. You're just like, wow, I'm so glad that somebody else did all this hard work because <laughs> I can just glean from it and be like, wow, okay, this genius says it makes sense, so that's good enough for me. Uh, but what's interesting is that the Messiah, they knew that he was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. They, had, they knew that. The trouble is, in AD 70, when Titus Vespasian came and the temple was destroyed, all of the genealogical records, all of the ways that you could possibly trace your, your line were destroyed. The temple was destroyed, all of that stuff. So after 70 AD, you'd be hard-pressed to be able to prove that you were the Messiah come from the line of Judah, from the line of David, you know. Um, so if you think about it that way, the Messiah would have had to been able to have come when you could trace his lineage, when those records were still around. Um, so I find that really interesting. The other thing is that's interesting is that it says um, that the, the right to rule, essentially, won't be taken away until the Messiah comes. But the right to rule and to execute the death penalty was taken away around 27 AD, uh, according to Joseph, uh, what's his name? Josephus, yeah, thank you. And, uh, and the Talmuds and stuff, they talk about this, saying that, you know, about 40 years before, a little over 40 years before the temple was destroyed, uh, Rome basically came in and said, we're in charge now. You know, you, you can't execute anybody Everything has to go through us. And according to many, you know, t- the Talmud and all these historical documents, it says that the rabbis and the priests and stuff were tearing their clothes saying, Messiah hasn't come yet, and we've lost the right to rule. What they didn't know is that Messiah had come. He just hadn't revealed himself to the world yet. Um, so <laughs> what's really cool is, uh, let me find where I was here. They actually say, if you remember in John 18, 31, I think, when they bring Jesus to Pilate, and he's like, why are you bringing him to me? You take him and judge him according to your law. That's what Pilate says to the Jews. And they said, 
it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So we know that when that happened, they couldn't execute the death penalty. If the death penalty still had been in place when Christ was alive, he would have been stoned to death. And all the prophecies about him being lifted up and being pierced, they wouldn't have been fulfilled. God orchestrates this whole thing. God has the ability to prophesy and to enlighten us. Could be future events. It could just be the word of God resonating inside of us. And like I said earlier when I started, there's a a flicker. You know, the, the flame inside of us is dwindling and it takes the word of God out of the mouth of another believer to spark that flame again. And when I read stuff like this, and when you do this research about, okay, let's see, like when, what's the timing here? Man, does it stoke up your faith because you see that God is able to tell the end from the beginning. He's able to reveal things to you about another person so that you can say, you know what? I know you're discouraged right now, but when I look at you, I see everything that you can be in Christ. And when, you get, when someone says that, something like that to you, boy, oh boy. That makes the problems that you're facing seem a little bit smaller, makes the burden a little bit lighter. And that's what we're called to do, is to speak from, from heaven, the oracles of God. I'm not saying that we're all going to walk around saying, in 2017, this is going to happen. That's not, for me, that's not prophecy. That's showmanship or, you know, like, I don't see, I see those types of prophecies in the Bible a lot less than I see people being called a prophet that are just speaking the truth or, even more importantly, reiterating the truth that God had already said and they had forgotten. When you look at the prophets, oftentimes what they're doing is they're saying, God said that if you left him, this is what would happen and you've left him. So guess what? This is going to happen, right? It's not necessarily that they're telling future events, They're just allowing God to play out the truth of his word. And I would encourage you guys, and and I have to think this way, is when we look at others and we talk to others, even if we're calling them out in sin, it's in a way that we say, you know what? God loves you. God has put his hand on you. And Joseph is, you know, I'm sorry, Jacob, is. it seems as though he's being harsh to his kids. But as we saw with Levi, there was an opportunity of grace there for them to get on the right track, to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart from all that wickedness that had been happening and make good on the promises that God had given to them. Uh, There's a story, my friend, he's a a missionary in Brazil, and their mission, you can pray for them, they're under a lot of turmoil right now. They had some problems with some of the people involved there um, doing some unethical, immoral things, but they're, they're in the heat of the battle right now. But their mission is, rescuing women and children off the streets of Brazil uh, from sex trafficking. And they have street church, as they call it, and they just go into these parks that are known for being basically the, the hangout for prostitution. Eight, nine-year-old kids. And they, they, there are times when they will actually drive up in a van, pull the person into the van, and drive away because they can't risk their... John or whatever, finding out that they are leaving the streets. Um, but he t- my friend told this story about a, 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 a young man that he had met who was a homosexual. And his father was a pastor in the town and who had kicked him out. Uh, and because of that, he thought that God hated him because of the way he had been treated for the way that he said God created him to be. And, uh, 
you know, he's like, all Christians hate gays and, and all this stuff. And it became, you know, Christians became, and you, you've heard this, we become more known for what we're against than what we're for, right? Uh, which I have no problem with that. I'll tell people what I'm against left and right. I have no problem with that. And, but as Chris has been talking about, it's speaking the truth in love and prophesying and, and speaking God's word into their life so that they have the incentive or there's the catalyst to make change. You know what I mean? Uh, similar to our good works, pointing people to God rather than saying our good works are the way you get to God. It's the same thing. We want our words to be a catalyst for people to change. We don't want to be beating them over the head with it. And that's where the idea of prophecy comes in, I think. But anyway, back to the story. The kid asked him, okay, so you're a Christian. Do you think homosexuality is wrong? And I'll never forget my friend's response. I don't think I would have the guts to say what he said. He said, I don't think it's wrong. I know it's wrong because the Bible says that it's wrong. But I also know that God's destiny for your life is so great that the enemy can't help but keep your eyes on this sin and keep you stuck here so that you are held back from accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish for his name. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I would never in the moment know what to say in that situation. But God spoke truth in a way Oh, I didn't even finish the story. The kid started crying and said, I always knew it was wrong. Even though he had said to his father and to him, God created me this way. And this is, you know, this is who I am. And it's not wrong. By revealing that truth, by speaking truth in a way that gives the person an out, essentially, giving them the way out, he was able to look into the eyes of that kid and and that kid realized that's the truth. He didn't say, oh, these stupid Christians. Yep, that's what I thought you were going to say. I'm out of here. Um, the right to rule and the right to have authority is Christ's. And when we see the idea of Shiloh coming, it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And I like the King James in that it says, and all the people will be gathered to him. Which I think is really cool. If you look at it, um, there's a verse that says in John, if you skip ahead, Don, I apologize. It's towards the end. It says in John twelve thirty two, and this is Jesus speaking about himself. He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. All peoples. When it says in verse 10 at the end, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, that obedience is a willing yieldedness. And that's essentially literally what the Hebrews says. The people are willfully obedient to this Shiloh, this person. It's not a, I'm going to beat you over the head with it. It's not a Simeon and Levi you need to get circumcised and then we're going to come and kill you all. It's not a God hates gays philosophy. It's not a the church won't let you in because you do X, Y, and Z. It's Jesus is lifted up and Jesus is so attractive that 
people can't help but be drawn to him. And when I'm talking about prophesying truth into other people's lives, and I said, we have the opportunity to not only reveal Christ to people by our blessing or our prophecy or our encouragement, but we reveal Christ in them. As Chris spoke about earlier this month, I think we're in Luke, about how Paul said, I am agonizing like a mother that Christ would be formed in you. We have the power of God in the word of God to call people out of that identity that they've, they've left themselves in. You know, even Jacob, I'm sure he wasn't happy saying, hey, yeah, you're a real snake. You know, yeah, I can't believe you did that. Oh, well, I'm dying and these are going to be the final words. You know, he wasn't, you know, I think there was a, a lot that he saw things in his children that if he had not told them the truth about who they were, he would have been doing them a disservice, even if it was uh, hurtful maybe at the time. So anyway, the, uh, the last couple things I want to just point out here when it talks about binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. These are some pretty cool images, I think. And I was reading about it because I was like, what, you know, what is all this uh, imagery? Because oftentimes, you know, as we're reading this, Jacob is talking very literally. And then all of a sudden he flips on a dime and says, this is a, a picture of something. So really quickly, it says, if you're familiar with it, wine is typically a symbol of joy and happiness in the Bible. It's the first fruits you know, they, they usually will, will get the first grapes from the harvest and they'll make a, you know, the fresh wine and they'll drink it and it's a celebration time there. But then he says the vesture, it's washed in, in garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, which I think is really interesting. Because you wouldn't squash a grape and say, oh, look at the grape's blood. Maybe to your kids you would say that because it's gross and weird or you, talk, you squish a bug and it's like got green blood that comes out or the lightning bugs that glow when you smush them. Sorry, I'm gross. But the blood of grapes, whereas in the scripture, wine is often a symbol of joy and happiness. Grapes are often a type of judgment as is blood. And then it talks about how his teeth are whiter than milk and milk has to do with the word of God. If you're familiar with uh, I think it's First Peter, and there's these verses that talk about the sincere milk of the word. So there's this, this image of the Messiah coming, and uh, there's this verse in Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, if you look when it says, his eyes are darker than wine, he has set his eyes. The Bible talks about how it's, he set his eyes for Jerusalem, for the, the crucifixion, for that sacrifice that he was going to make. And the, this vesture dipped in the blood of grapes. In the Revelation, it talks about how the one who comes, his vesture is dipped in blood. And he treads out the wine presses of God's wrath. And we know that in the garden, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath so that we didn't have to, so that we would get the cup from God's right hand, the cup of blessing. And that's the type of the Messiah here that we see in the picture uh, is just really amazing. And, and we see the teeth whiter than wine, uh, uh, whiter than milk. I, I'm sorry, that's, that's obviously a type of, of the word of God 
being on the lips of the Messiah. And coincidence, I think not. The Messiah was the Word of God made flesh. So, uh, just a couple verses to close here. You know, we, we, I read through Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher. There's not really much to say um, about those guys, unfortunately. Um, I think it's kind of an indictment of, of what they decided to do with, with Jacob's words is that they kind of fall off the scene. Dan ends up being the reason Israel falls into idolatry, if you want to look that up for yourselves. Um, that's why he, he calls them the serpent. If Dan is called the serpent, and we know that you know, the serpent in the garden is a sign of the idolatry that we all chase after at some point in our lives. But uh, just to close, a verse in Zechariah 2.10 says, uh, and this is the idea of drawing all people to himself. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. In verse 11. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. They shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst, he says again. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Wait a minute. I thought this was God speaking. How can God send God? And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So I just find that really interesting. You can do with it as you will, but I tend to think that that's the Messiah speaking. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, we just went through this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then uh, if you could skip ahead to Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That verse says it all. I need to say, so I'm just going to close. <laughs> Father, thank you for, uh, for your word and for how powerful it is and how we are encouraged to speak truth, even in a world that loves the lie and loves the relevant truth. I pray that um, when we are called to speak the truth, Lord, that we would do it in love, that we would present it in a way that gives people a way out, not a way um, of guilt or shame or destruction. I just thank you for speaking, Lord, to me. In Jesus' name, amen.